evidence and answers. Padme Lin grew up in a Muslim home, but realized the truth was not in Islam. How did she come to this conclusion? And what led her to discover that the truth was in Jesus Christ? How can we help our Muslim friends find Jesus Christ? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. If you're unable to hear any of this broadcast, all our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, tune in as our host, Pat Sukran, interviews Padme Lin and discusses her journey from Islam to Christianity. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Jesus Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, today we have with us an interesting guest who has a powerful story of how she came to faith in Jesus Christ. Padme Lynn is here to share her story, her journey from Islam to Jesus Christ. So Padme, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. Well, Padme, you grew up in Southeast Asia in a country that was dominated by the religion of Islam. Tell us a little bit about your background and growing up there. Uh, it was really interesting. Um, it was a loving childhood, Muslim family, born and raised Muslim. The environment wasn't very overtly um, religious, I would say. I think when the Saudi money came in the late 70s, in the 80s, it permeated Southeast Asia. And then the madrasas, the religious schools, sprung up. And it got a bit more religious, a bit more fundamentalist, if you would say. And my mom began to wear the hijab, the Islamic headscarf. But, you know, the environment that we grew up in was a kind of very inquiring, I would almost say secular environment until maybe when I was 10 years old or so. Yes. Tell us the difference. I mean, there's a difference, well, at least there was, between the Islamic practices in Southeast Asia and, mm -hmm. let's say, in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and in countries like that. Can you explain to us a little bit of how they're different and how they become more similar today? Sure. I'll try my best. I'm not an expert on this subject, but what I understand is that Wahhabism grew in Saudi Arabia and gained currency with the ruling Saudi monarchy and then exported that form of Wahhabism, fundamentalism to other parts of the world through oil diplomacy, and that included Southeast Asia. And I could see that change as I grew up. You know, we I was, giving, I was given, I would say, a secular name, not even a Muslim name. So it was, my parents were, you know, just like any typical 70s, very hippie. We didn't eat halal food, that means Muslim food. We eat just like any other non-Muslims. But then when, when, that, when that whole Wahhabi, Wahhabism permeated Southeast Asia, that all changed. Women started wearing the hijab more. Madrasas, religious schools, started up all over the, the, the region. And um, there was a different channel to everything. When I would attend say, mosque, for instance, uh, the preachers would say things like singling out people who are not Muslims and saying they were kafir, people who are unbelievers. So there was this distinct they versus us dichotomy that it would, they were preaching back in the 80s. And I could still clearly remember that. Yes, kafir, that means uh, unbeliever or infidel. It, it's not a yeah. complimentary term, is it? No, no, it's actually derogatory and it's meant to raise boundaries and to make it clear that we were different to them. Yes, and when you say, you know, it moved to more a more fundamentalist line, that means a more stricter interpretation of the Quran and enforcement more of Sharia law. Isn't that what we're saying? 
Yes, correct. And that also, you could see that happen in terms of the politics of the region, and I wouldn't go too much into that. But you will see that, for example, with Wahhabism, people are, uh, people who would, uh, before one community, who would used to eat together at the same table, suddenly the Muslims can't eat with their friends anymore because, you know, this new form of Islam teaches them that you have to be very strict about whether the food you're eating were contaminated by the concrete it was used or the utensils that we used before if you had touched pork and things like that. And so communities then suddenly became quite separate and there was this whole distinct identity about being Muslim and also being separate from the other people who used to be, you know, in one village, so to speak. So that created a lot of difficulties sometimes for the authorities in that region. And so they had to come up with different ways to address it. And it became more and more urgent after September 11 when, you know, when there was a need to make sure that the moderate Muslim voice, you could call it moderate, to come to the fore and to criticize all that's happened before. Yes. Now, I've been to several of those countries in Southeast Asia. And uh, tell us just a little bit how uh, non-Muslims, they don't have exactly the same rights and privileges as those in the Islamic community. Can you tell us a little bit of the differences you noticed growing up there? I think it's really difficult to say because I I think you may be trying to talk about Malaysia and and that they have a Bumiputra, which means indigenous people policy. That means that People who are, who are of local tribes or of Malay heritage would have more privileges than those who are of Chinese or Indian heritage. But that's not really the case in all the other countries there. It's not the case in Singapore, which is meritocracy, which is the reason why it broke away from Malaysia in the first place. And it's not the case necessarily in Indonesia, which is really a mix of different religions. So you have Hinduism there and Islam, true as well, but really it's a mix of things that they practice and animism is also there. So... I think it really depends on where you are, and I'm not saying that you're that is not happening. It is happening certainly in certain places within countries, but it will not necessarily be a uniform trend across the region. Now, eventually, you came out of Islam. Explain to us a little bit what led you out of the religion of Islam. I've always been inquiring, like uh, inquiring kind of child with, with a curious mind, and even as a child, when I used to sit in the mosque. I would ask many questions and embarrass my mother. And uh, for me, I used to ask a lot of questions too while I was in a madrasa in a religious school and question why the textbooks were written the way they were about God and things that were man-made, for instance, why things that were man-made were not as beautiful as, as things that were made by God. And for me, it was just almost like this really strict dichotomy which doesn't have to exist, if you understand what I'm trying to say. And so when I, I started working abroad and when I was living in South Asia, it was Ramadan, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, where you have to fast for one month. It was it was one night when I was reading the Quran, as you would as a Muslim, when I came across the story of Abraham, you know, of the sacrifice of Ishmael in the Muslim tradition. But then, you know, I know from my own reading that in the Judaic and Christian traditions, it's Isaac that was supposed to be sacrificed. So for me, even the basic story of it was not... What was it that one child was switched for the other? And then I became very interested in the whole issue of the veracity and historical evidence. And and then therefore I began to look for answers. It was I didn't come to Christianity right away. I looked first to Judaism because I felt that they were people of the same book, the Holy Faith. And I went to look at the Torah and I practiced it for a year all the different holidays like Purim and um and Yom Kippur and all that. But 
it got to the point where I felt that the Talmud, the teachings of the rabbis, were a bit like were a bit too legalistic. And as a Jewish woman, if you were trying to practice it and become, you know, and really follow the faith, I thought it was a bit too much because they were trying to do all these teachings were trying to do more than what was originally taught. And so all the rabbinic rabbinic teachings were really about expanding upon the law, if you will. So from Islam, you went to Judaism. That's uh, quite fascinating there. Now, you said it was part of the historical inconsistencies in the Quran that you saw in the teachings. Was it specifically regarding women or unbelievers? What what was it? It was a lot of it was about practice where, for instance, in Islam, you'd be taught to first wash your hands when you first wake up. And then you don't understand why that was the case. But when I started Judaism, I actually lived with a, with a Hasidic family and I stayed with this girl who was training to be with the rabbi's wife. And, and she had a bowl of water next to her next to her bed when she woke up in the morning. So next to her cot, she wake up and she immediately dipped her hands in the water and she would show me where it was taught where they had mentioned this in the teachings. And so for me, it was really clear that there was an origin and, and a whole explanation about why things were. But in Islam, I felt that that felt short. So it really felt that I had to keep searching for answers because there were a lot of gaps and, and inconsistencies in Islam. Yes, uh, and I'm kind of interested, you know, what are some other inconsistencies I guess you saw between the Bible and the Quran? There's several, but uh, what are some that you yeah. discovered? Well, for me, the main thing was Really, the whole issue about good works, that was a main thing as a practicing Muslim. And then as a practicing person was trying to understand the, the, the Judaism as a faith, it was all about good works. And so if you miss the fourth prayer, Asar in Islam, it was equivalent to having sex with your parents, the sin. It was all about how you have to mitigate the sins of your daily life and how you can mitigate that by doing more good. But I thought it was a never-ending race. And with Judaism, it was the same because they always have these extra rules to try and make sure that you're not falling into error and then you're erring on the side of caution. But when I came across the concept of salvation, this is after a year of practicing Judaism in South Asia. I decided that this was not getting me anywhere and decided to look for one more faith that was part of the holy books as as I was taught as a Muslim, as a child, and that was the New Testament. And so I went to see a priest and his wife. And we had regular dinners every Wednesday, once a week, to discuss. Because for me, I need to go and to teach and learn from somebody who was learned in this space and to ask questions. And it was really the book by Nabil Qureshi, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. I just read the book one weekend. I finished it in one weekend. And that was it. I went to the priest and said, the pastor, and I said, this is it. I, I, I think this changed my life. I can't look back anymore. Yes, you know, I've read that book and I've uh, spoken with uh, Nabil and oh, uh, wow. we talked about things. Yeah, very powerful, powerful book. What was it in his biography that was really compelling to you? For me, he actually asked all the questions that I asked as a Muslim, like what is a trinity? What about Muhammad, the prophet? Uh, what is fallible about him? What about the teachings of Jesus? What is the concept of salvation and, and all that and sin? And he answered all that systematically. Every question I had, it was as if he could read my mind and read and then read it out himself. And I was so interested. And for me, there was just no going back after that. So for me, it was, and also the whole part about historical veracity, that the fact that all that's happened in Christianity, you can actually still look at it in history and you can see that it's actually happened. And with Islam, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily the case. And so it took me a while, maybe several months before I finally took the leap of faith and got baptized. You know, one of the unique things about 
Christianity is that it is indeed a historical faith. And yes. one of the things that we, when we've talked with uh, top Islamic scholars, that's one of the things they say about uh, Islam is that the historical verifications aren't there as you have, no. dis- as you discovered. Yeah. You know, actually, Pat, if I may add, it's oh, actually yes. quite shocking because Nabil also mentioned it in his book that, you know, as a child, you always say, child, you know, when I ask the questions, even of my elders, as a, as a child, I remember it clearly, people would say, hefty. And that's literally all they would tell you, have faith, and you just have to just stop your questioning. And for me, you know, I look at my, my Muslim brothers and sisters, and it's really asking them, why can you not look further and ask more questions? Because if you do, you will move away from Islam, because it, because the questions will lead you to a different faith, and that will be Christianity. Yes, you know, that's a great point you bring up, and that's what Evidence and Answers is all about. You know, that discovering the truth is more than just emotions, that indeed yes. God tells us to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Christianity involves the mind as well as the heart. And so, uh, as yes. Christians, you know, we don't want to say, well, just believe, just believe, just believe. If people have no. legitimate questions and they are seeking, you know, we do a big disfavor when we just tell them, well, just believe, just believe, because Christianity, yeah. as you discovered, does indeed have a lot of evidence for those who are inquiring and questioning and want to know, is there any substance to this guy, Jesus Christ and the New Testament, as you and Nabil and many and myself coming out of Buddhist background, mm-hmm. you know, were questioning and we found the answers in Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you brought up is the Trinity issue. That's a yeah. big stumbling block with Muslims. Tell us why yeah. why that is a stumbling block and how Nabil's explanation of it was able to bring that light to your mind. To be honest, it still took me a long time. That was probably the last stumbling block, even from his book. I still couldn't fully grasp it. And I t- asked my pastor, asked people in church, and a lot of them couldn't really answer it. I think when I moved here to the U.S., it was easier for me, for people to explain to me how the Holy Spirit works in you, and I've witnessed it, and it's always been in my own daily life, and able to practice with the teaching. I find it easier now to explain several years ago what it means to, to have the Trinity and, and especially the Holy Spirit component because I think the Father, Jesus, is really clear in the, in the in Scripture and so is the Holy Spirit, but it's just easier to have a relationship as we will follow the minds of human minds. But in terms of the Holy Spirit and what it means to us after Jesus has left us and He's left the Holy Spirit for us here on earth, it took me some time to come fully come to, to, to terms with it, but I'm really grateful now for... for what it means to me here right now in my life. Yes, in many Muslims that I've spoken with, you know, the Quran teaches a form of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Mary. And many Muslims feel when you're talking about the Trinity, you're talking about three gods, you know, and so mm. to get them to understand it's one God revealed in three persons is is quite a challenge. How are you able to put it together? Are you for me? You don't understand that. I was also reading what Qureshi was has written, and he said that it's the concept that didn't come from us, and so we, with our fallible minds, really find it hard to grasp. But the Trinity is something that you have to accept if you understand all the precepts and concepts that come before it, and I wish I had. And then for me as well, just witnessing how the Holy Spirit works in my life and the lives of others, and seeing how, how that has transformed people's lives too, I can testify that there is a Trinity that exists. 
but I think you have to take that leap of faith first before I, I guess someone say from a Muslim background would be able to fully come to grab terms with it. It's not the most easiest a concept to explain to someone from that background. Yes. Now, another difficult concept in Islam is, you know, God having a son. Jesus Christ mm-hmm. being the divine son of mm-hmm. God. Was that an issue for you? And, you know, how were you able to put that together? I think, okay, for me, it was reading the scriptures. The two New Testaments are very clear. And in the Old Testament, too, they are a scripture that that basically attests to his coming. And Islam, you know, basically Jesus' sin is not divine, but uh, as, as one of the messengers. And he, does, and he didn't die on the cross, but was taken up bodily into heaven where he is right now. So... There is that concept of savior and, and all that stuff, and so it's not too alien for a Muslim. So I think the concept of father and son wouldn't be too hard for someone to grasp. The whole concept of salvation also would be, would be very liberating and freeing, uh, as, I, as I found for myself. Yes, because in Islam, you know, it's a works-oriented kind of yeah. religion in which the Muslim has to work really hard to please Allah, because Allah is watching you. You know, Quran says yeah. he's as close as your jugular vein. Yes, uh, but right. you, you said you found salvation in Christ very freeing. Explain that yeah. for us. For me, growing up in, in, as a Muslim kid, it, it felt that was always this whole testament thing of, of like anger and wrath and fury and possibly having to atone for your sins, uh, not in a Catholic way, but just having to do more good in order to keep up the sins that you're constantly doing. And, and for me, it was just never any cycle. And I felt that in my in the time that I was living in South Asia, I felt that it was really dispiriting because uh, where do you go? It's almost like a rat race. You're on this little wheel and it's not, not stopping at all for you. You know, I was on prayer mat, just night after night crying and asking Allah for like help and give me some some um, some enlightenment and it was really difficult. And I spoke to one of my coworkers, and he said, "You know, if you if you if you seek, you shall find." And I and I thought, I didn't I didn't think much of it at the time, and then I kept thinking about it, and I did pray, and I asked, and finally, when I, the concept of salvation was explained to me, I I thought that literally when I accepted Christ, this whole burden on my shoulders was just lifted off because He has died for me. He's all our sins, uh, you know, just on the cross, and so. Really, there's, there's nothing we can do. Um, he's done everything for us. Yes, you know, that's one of the unique parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in Islam, you know, Buddhism, others, really there's no atonement for the sins that we commit. I mean, once you commit them, they're on your record, and you're going to have to do a lot more good works so that you mm-hmm. outweigh the sin that you just committed. But it, there's really no atonement or wiping away of that sin. Is that uh, was your understanding of sins that you committed as a Muslim? Yeah, it was always like I had this, this visual of the right, shoulders that where where the angel would then put down all the points where you were doing when you doing good works and the angel on the left shoulder was all for your sins. So now people are always making jokes like, Oh, your left shoulder will be heavier, you know, and making jokes like that and then trying to do feasts or, or trying to donate money to the, the in the in the, in the name of a person who has deceived, in order to try and make sure that he or she has is died, is going to die uh, has died in peace and doesn't have all these burdens of sin, even though he or she is dead. And it was just, you know, and I see all that, and and it's just this small. Even when I tried to talk to my family about it, my brother would say something like, gosh, we have so much sins on our on our heads, and, you know, I would go to my grave a sinner. And I, I just feel so sorry for him, and I wish that there was a way that I could try and communicate 
Jesus' message to my family in a way that would not jeopardize my own life. Those of you not familiar, what Padme is talking about is that the Quran teaches that there's an angel on your left and an angel on your right. All throughout your life, one records your good deeds and your bad deeds. And on the day of judgment, the books are open. And if you're you know, good works far outweigh your bad and Allah is merciful. You've got a chance into Islamic paradise. Yeah, and it's a tremendous burden uh, for Muslims there. Well, speaking of your family, how did your family respond when they discovered you left Islam? They don't know yet, and I've uh, purposely kept it a secret from them, and I'm still trying to figure out and praying mm-hmm. over a way of trying to figure out how to pass a message to them. Sometimes also I worry for my own safety when I do go back to where I'm from, but I take courage, you know, in Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before us and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Uh, and so, you know, I can't even, like, wear my cross or bring any form of scripture with me when I do go back and I have to be very mindful and careful what's like for me on social media and things like that. So, but, I, but I'm just hoping for a way where I can we're able to pass a message and I do talk to them about religion and they know that I'm just in religions in general anyway and I and I mentioned the things that I do know about Christianity and I wouldn't say like, like you know, explain factually what, what Christian is what all about and say, and then vis-a-vis, for example, Islam, and they will take it in a very, in a good way, because they know that I, I like to read, and and I try to do it in a way that is not offensive in any way, but, but just trying to present facts as, as they are. Yes, and you may be listening, you know, since we're here in the United States and in some other free uh, democracies there in uh, Asia, many people may not actually believe or wondering uh, what you're talking about. You know, mm-hmm. I, I speak on many college campuses. They don't, you know, believe these kinds of things happen. But there is a penalty for those who leave Islam. What yeah. is that penalty? Well, actually, I read it. I looked, up, I looked it up recently, and it was quite disconcerting. So in, in Islam, there's teachings of, to do with the Quran and also the Muslim followers are asked to also read the teachings of the Prophet, and that's called the Hadith. So the Quran and the Hadith together make up the the, the, the teachings of, of Islam. And so it's the teachings of Prophet Muhammad, is the Hadith. And the strength of the Hadith will depend on who has publicated the, the information. So based on his character, um, based on how long he's uh, he's known the Prophet, and what, you know, and, uh, and so what's been written down or not, or what's been orally passed. And so for example, there's uh, Hadith uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, which is one of the most known followers and friends of the Prophet Muhammad. And so his Hadith are considered Sahih, which means of the highest regard because they're very strong um, of because of his relationship to the Prophet, his own character, where he knows himself, what, what he has written down in the presence of the Prophet and things like that. And so there is this, this Hadith that, was, that, he, that the, al-Bukhari has written down that said that if you become apostate, uh, you have to be killed. And, and then for, for men, even if they repent, they will still be killed. And for women, uh, if they repent, there's a chance that they will not be killed. And it's very clear. And so for me, that was just, yeah, that was just untenable for me to have a faith like that that propagates uh, killings, and, you know, as a faith, yeah. Yeah, it's called honor killing, which is practiced in many Muslim communities, even in the yeah. West. Uh, and that's yeah. taught in the Quran. And as you said, the Hadith, that's the penalty yeah. for apostasy. And, that's you right. know, many here in the West 
the press, I guess the, the left wing press at least, will propagate that, you know, Islam is a very peaceful, kind, tolerant, merciful kind of religion. And these kinds of things don't happen in Islam. But indeed, it's taught throughout the Quran and it is still practiced in many communities that strictly yeah. interpret the Quran as you experienced, isn't it? Yes, well, that's one way, that's the apostasy, but there's another form of honor killing because Prophet Muhammad himself taught that if you see something, you witness something, you're supposed to stop it with your hand. And then if you cannot do that for, for certain whatever reasons, then you must say something against it. And But if you still cannot do that, then the lowest form, the, the weakest form, would be to say something against it in your heart. But you see, this, this whole teaching of, of the Prophet Muhammad condones honor killings, because if, if they see something, for example, a Muslim girl marrying a, a non-Muslim man, or, um, or things where accidental affairs and stuff like that, so people are getting killed for that. And that is just difficult for a religion to propagate as a form of teaching. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your friends. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Let me live. Let me live.